Hi there. We really hope you enjoy this teaching from the message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Good morning all. Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, We are again in Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 23. Please do turn there. Um, And if you're reading from the NIV, from verse 26, you'll get this title that says, The Crucifixion of Jesus. We have made it here. We've made it to the crux of the gospel, the pinnacle, the epicenter. And there is nothing more upside down a moment than this. The Most High will be brought low. The glorious made inglorious. The powerful made powerless. The holy made unholy. The just faces injustice. The King of Kings crowned with thorns. The author of life left lifeless. The rescuer will not be rescued. Robed in righteousness, yet he hangs naked. The one who sanctifies is crucified. The cross awaits Christ. But Jesus first has got to walk across the city. He's got to walk across the city carrying his cross upon his back and he'll walk a road that is now known as the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrows. And it's not a short road and it's not a straight road. It's wiggly and it's windy and there's steps and it's narrow and it's awkward. The intention of the Romans was to make sure everybody got to witness who was coming through. The shame that is born needs to be seen by all. Hoping that fear would be generated amongst the people. That people would be controlled by the Romans who will put to death those who stand against them. And so Jesus is taken around the houses. Luke doesn't detail the pain and suffering that Jesus has faced, but if you read a combination of the narrative of the four Gospels, you'll begin to realise that by now Jesus has been brutalised. He's been struck in the face. He's been blindfolded and beaten. He's been scourged. He's been whipped within an inch of his life with a whip that I cannot even describe. It is torture. And the soldiers have twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. By now, Jesus is seriously wounded. By now, Jesus is critically injured. He's losing blood and his strength is fading fast. Isaiah prophesied this. His appearance was so disfigured by beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And he's led away from his sentencing by these Roman centurions, these guards that have placed the, the cross beam, not the whole cross, the cross beam of the cross upon his shoulders. But Jesus is so weak that they're worried he won't make it to the cross. Carrying the cross is too much. He suffered enough already. But we need Jesus to get to the cross. We all need Jesus to die upon the cross. The Jews needed a Roman death and the Romans needed to keep the Jews happy and we need Jesus to fulfill the scriptures. Dying on the road to the cross is not what was prophesied. 
Psalms 22 from verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garments. John 3.14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's nothing about dying upon the road. So in order to get Jesus to Golgotha, to get Jesus to the place called the skull, the Romans find a man on the road to carry his cross for him. See the upside down kingdom sees the king so weak that he can't even carry his own cross. Jesus calls his disciples to carry their cross, but yet Jesus can't carry his own. Do you see the, 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 the amazing nature of the kingdom coming to bear? That the, the creator of the universe, the very giver of life, is so weak that he can't even walk. Christ is humbled. Christ is the carpenter. Carrying wood was his day job. But yet in this moment, he is so weak that he can't even carry himself. And there in the crowd is a man called Simon. And I want it to be Simon Peter, but it's not. The one who said he would never desert Jesus is long gone. Ironically, there's another Simon to fill the gap. His name is Simon of Cyrene. He is not a follower of Jesus. He is not a disciple. He's just a man visiting the city from out of town. But Simon is special. See, Simon is from Libya. Simon is an African man. Do you see how the kingdom of God is so beautiful that in the most intimate of moments, the person found is the stranger, the outcast and the foreigner, and they're brought in to assist Christ in his death. Do you see how the kingdom works? What an honour and a privilege. How precious that moment is to be chosen from the masses to carry the cross of the Messiah. Imagine putting that on your CV. I carried the cross of Christ. I wonder if he had any idea. When he was picked from the crowd, did he understand the significance of the moment? I would love to hear Simon's side of the story. I want to read about what happened to him next. What did he go on to achieve? Did he, did he ever seek forgiveness of the one whose cross he carried? Mark's gospel gives us a little clue. Mark's gospel calls him a certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would he put that detail in there? Because tradition holds that Alexander and Rufus were early church missionaries that saw the gospel go from Jerusalem to Rome. And it's believed that Rufus might be the guy that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 16. And he says, and he declares that this guy, Rufus, this guy Rufus was there and I'm like, maybe, just maybe, Simon got to stand up one day and declare, I carried the cross for the one who died upon it for me and my sin. Imagine the testimony, imagine the power, imagine the significance and the importance of that which is being shared 
The crowd builds. The crowd gets larger. And all the time people are gathering. Are these the people that have journeyed with Jesus from Capernaum? Are these the same people that took off their coats and lay them on the floor and began to wave palm branches and sang songs of salvation? Are these the people that witnessed Christ upon a donkey as he made his way towards Jerusalem and towards the cross? Are these the same crowd? I don't know. The the text says that there are women there who mourned and wailed. And I begin to think, are they the women that we know? Is it Mary, Mary and Martha and the other Mary? Is it those women? Are they the ones that stand at the roadside and weep as Jesus passes by? But Jesus calls out to them and he calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. They're not Jesus' women. These are local ladies. Some say they've come because they would come to the crucifixions to weep over the loss of life. Some say that they would grieve in opposition to the Roman oppression. Some say they were even paid to weep and to wail at the crucifixions, to, to emphasize the point, to make drama from the scene, professional mourners. But Jesus, in his agony and his pain, calls out to them. And I love it that in this moment, Jesus doesn't think about himself, but he's turned out towards the other. He's not concerned about his own fate, but he's worried for them. He doesn't ask for help. And in this moment of grief, he doesn't feel anger. There's no defiance in his voice, whoever these women are. Well, they receive words of compassion, of care, and of grace. And I love the fact that Jesus' final teaching, this is a micro-sermon on the way to the cross, and it's given for women. Consistently and faithfully through the gospel, Jesus has highlighted, honoured, and upheld women. And it's them that get this final word in a society that considers them second class or degraded or overlooked or undervalued, do you see the kingdom again coming to bear that the first will be last and the last will be first? And he says to them, don't grieve for me. Don't grieve for me. And their grief is justified in the moment, but he says, don't grieve for me. Grieve for yourself. Grieve for what is to come. Mourn for what is just around the corner. See, Jesus has been prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. He's done it many times in the recent verses. And now within a generation, he's telling them again that Jerusalem will fall into the hands of the Romans. The temple will be destroyed and the people will flee. And he says, don't waste your tears on me. Disaster is coming. And I'm not going to be here to help. And then the moment of the crucifixion. The moment of the crucifixion is an upside down moment in itself. See, if I'm the writer of Luke, I put a big full stop and I turn the page and I begin to write a new chapter. I step up the narrative. I change gear. I'm going to give you more passion and more power than you've ever seen before. I'm saving my best writing. The greatest bit of narrative you're ever going to find. But Luke gives us no glorious description. 
He gives us no great detail. There isn't any gore. There's nothing there that will begin to stimulate an emotive imagery within me. Nothing, nothing provokes me. There's nothing of any great description. All we get is one verse. Verse 33. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. I want to connect emotionally to the text. I want to feel something at the point of the crucifixion. I don't know if you're like me, but I want to be moved. I want to be stirred. I want to grieve. I want to break something inside of me. I want to choke up. I want to well up. I want to be overwhelmed with what's going on at the cross. I want something to change within me. I want worship to begin to break out at the glory of Christ upon a cross. I want thanksgiving to sort of well up and burst out. I want something to happen. But it feels almost like Luke misses the moment. We hear nothing that stirs our imagination, nothing to move our heart, but yet Luke's language is unique. Luke uses a phrase used only once elsewhere in scripture. And it's never used again. One parallel scripture which dangles this little loose thread that invites us to pull it and see where it takes us. Let me read for you the context. It's found in a passage in Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When they had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went up together. Isaac spoke and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went up together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. 
Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. When they reached the place, when they came to the place, they are the same words in the same order, one in the Hebrew, one in the Greek, like a little hidden conspiracy. Luke repeats the line of an ancient story of an only son to be sacrificed by his father, a son who places the wood upon the shoulders of his son. The hill called Golgotha goes by another name, the hill or the Mount of Moriah. They are the same hill. And in the same moment, that final moment, as a father looks at his only son, he will not spare him. He will sacrifice his son. He'll be raised up upon the cross to die for sinners. And Christ in that moment, as they pull him up, as he pull him up upon the cross, begins to receive insults. People begin to shout things at him. He saved others, let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And I suppose at the point of the cross where sin is atoned for, it makes sense for sin to abound, for Christ to be surrounded by sinners on all sides. Christ the righteous is being crucified between criminals, counted amongst transgressors. And even one of them close to death, without a hope, he too begins to mock and to shout, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And weak as Jesus is, he had at his disposal a legion of angels that could have come down to his aid. They could have taken him from the cross and nursed him back to strength. They could have begun a war, a mighty war that would have turned God against mankind. But Jesus Jesus cannot save himself and save us as well. Jesus cannot save himself without condemning the world. How hard it must have been for Jesus. No one talks about this moment as a moment of temptation. But how hard it must have been for Jesus not to look out with hatred as he's trying to love on them and be generous and pour out his life for their sins and they mock him to his face. How hard it would have been to contain anger or hatred or condemnation, but yet Jesus, Jesus is amazing. Even though their words, their insults cut deeper than the wounds of the whip, Jesus begins to speak forgiveness. Jesus does what Jesus does and he prays to his father. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Amidst the carnage, there's one final, beautiful, upside down moment. The truly, like most epic, last will be first moment. See, there's a second criminal who has been crucified next to Christ and he calls out in the defense of Jesus. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. 
we were punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, no, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't know his name, but he's a late addition to the book called Life. We call him the thief upon the cross, but in that moment he is the redeemed upon the cross. He never attended church, he's not on a rotor. He didn't respond to a gospel appeal, he's never read a tract. He didn't pray the standard sinner's prayer. He wasn't baptized, he never took communion, he hasn't been discipled. There's no mention of him being filled with the Spirit. He's never spoken in tongues, he never goes on mission. He's never seen anyone get saved. He didn't write a book, he's never read the Bible, he's never served the poor. We don't know which of the fivefold ministry gifts he is. We know nothing other than he is a sinner who threw himself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And Christ in his weakness reveals the power of the cross. With little life left, he offers eternal life. Fighting for breath. Fighting for breath, hanging upon a cross. Jesus promises him paradise. Surrounded by the merciless, Jesus reveals the mercy of God. Amidst the abuse of haters, Jesus reveals the love of the Father and it's mind-blowing. And you know what? Jesus doesn't lie. Within a day, those men met together in paradise. The thief will be there. He followed Christ in. He was first and he should have been last. This is the upside down kingdom. It makes no sense to man. One day you and I will get to meet him. You'll get to ask him his story. Find out his experiences. And he will tell you. I'm sure he'll love to tell you. And he'll say these words. I'm confident of that. I did nothing to deserve it. But Christ was enough. Jesus remembered me. What an incredible prayer. You know, sometimes life is really, really hard. And if you can only remember a few words to say, just ask Christ to remember you. When you've got nothing left, when you feel like you're at the end of yourself, cry out, fall upon the mercy of God and say, Jesus, remember me. As if Jesus could forget. As if Jesus could forget that moment as he's hanging upon the cross. As if he could forget the guy who asks for the very thing he came to give. As if he'll forget you. When you ask for the thing, the very thing he came to give. So why don't we spend a moment now 
talking to our Saviour. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. Thanks for listening.